But for this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 John 3 and 4. All right, so open your Bibles to there. Um, We've been talking about Beloved, and this is 1 John. We're actually going to land this plane pretty soon. We're going to wrap up this series in a couple of weeks. But uh, I've really enjoyed 1 John. It's one of those passages that really just like, it's like a punch in the face when you read it, but in such a loving, powerful way. So would you, before we begin, would you take a deep breath? Maybe bow your heads, close your eyes. Would you do that with me? And I would like to invite you to talk to God about whatever's going on in your life. Just give it to him. Are there any distractions? Are there any frustrations? Is there anything that's maybe warring against your attention this morning from being on on God and his word. Lord, we give it all to you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we have the privilege of being here this morning. Thank you, God, for all that you want to do. I pray that you would speak through me now, that it would be you, Lord, who speaks. I pray that through your word, you would, you would truly, through your spirit, illumine our eyes, illumine our minds, our hearts. In the name and authority of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. All right, so this morning I want to talk about the ultimate picture of God. What does God look like? Here's a picture of God. I found this on, uh, believe it or not, jehovahswitnesses.org. So (laughs) Google search took me there. Um, I just think it's funny how every picture of God, if you ever Google it, a picture of God, he's always got a beard. I don't know. I looked through the scriptures, I never saw once, you know, the scriptures describe God, they don't paint us a full exhaustive picture of God, but they do tell us a lot about God and what he looks like, and I never saw anything about a beard in the Bible, but but we all have kind of our picture of what God looks like, don't we? We kind of have an idea, We, we know he's on a throne. We know he's powerful, and we know that he's spirit. But did you know that God created you and I in his image? That Colossians says that Jesus is the physical representation of God? We have pictures of God all around us. And this morning, John talks about a very powerful and a very important, in fact, I think the ultimate picture of God is something we're about to read about. Okay, so look with me in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, the ultimate picture of God. We're going to start reading in verse 11. Are you there? All right. Hmm. So this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, FYI. But later I'll be in the New American Standard Version. I love using lots of versions. Anyhow. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Okay, so here he starts out with a command. He says, love one another and don't be like Cain. 
And he, he takes us to Cain and Abel, and if we have time, we'll go and look at that story because it's an awesome story. It's a lot of fun to look through and read through. But here's Cain, and he was doing what was wrong, and Abel was doing what was right. And so what are the people that do what is wrong, how do they feel towards those who do what is right? Usually not great, right? Usually it's, it's angst anger, hatred, and if you're living righteously, if you're following God and people are choosing to go against God, there's going to be some friction there, isn't there? Do you remember when you were a kid and your friends were like, hey, let's try smoking? You know, this, this happened to me. Hey, you know, you should smoke. I was like, no, no, that's lame. No, we're going to all smoke. And I was like, no, not going to do it. And uh, we just weren't friends after that. Something happens and they're like, oh, he's, you know, he's a goody two-shoes or whatever. Yeah, but my lungs are awesome right now, okay? <laughs> Every old smoker I've ever met started when they were very young. Bottom line, sorry. Maybe you're the exception. But, but the point is, when you are doing what's right, when you're trying to do what's right, and people want to do what's wrong, they're not going to like the guy who's doing what's right. Right? That's a lot of right in that sentence. He says in verse 14, If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Are you catching this? What proves that you've passed from death to life? How you love. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Now that word hate. You remember a few weeks ago, maybe more than a month ago, we talked about the measure of maturity. And we talked about the word for hate that he's using. It's called meseo. And it's a Greek word that means feelings of anger and, and malice towards another person. So hatred, you know, in the Bible, hatred can mean something more than just like what you and I mean. Like for us, hatred is like the, the very most extreme feeling we could have towards somebody else. But in the Bible, it's prolonged feelings of anger. Prolonged feelings of anger equal hatred. And it's very easy for you and I to slip into this hatred of one another. Hatred of other people because they make us feel bad or maybe they do something and we feel judged by them and it's easy to have that hatred and resentment. And we talked about how God wants to free us from that. And this morning, if you're here, and honestly, the signature of your life, if you're really honest, if the people around you are honest, is anger. If that's a major obstacle in your life, God wants to set you free from that. God's best for you is not an angry life. The new life in Jesus that he has for you is not a life full of rage and anger and hatred. And if that is marking your life, if you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with anger and hatred and resentment and bitterness, God wants to set you free. He wants to set you free. And so here he's talking about if you have love for others, that proves that you have Jesus in your life. If you don't, then it proves that you really don't. I love John the way he, he talks because he's really saying the truth is in the facts. 
The facts don't lie. You're able to lie to yourself, you're able to lie to others, but your life shows what you believe. Your attitudes show what you believe. How you deal with a traffic accident shows what you believe. How you deal with disappointment with marriage and relationships and in your work, it shows what you believe, doesn't it? So here we are. In verse 16, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. What is love? Do you guys remember? We talked about it a few different times. And this is the Ben Sprague definition of love. I realize it's not, there's no Bible verse that says love is this. Desire, commitment, and sacrifice. Write it down. There are a lot of descriptions of love in, in Scripture. But do you want to know what in, in its essence, in its most reduced, simplest form, love, God's love, scriptural love, is desire, meaning you want to be around that person, you want that person in your life. Commitment, meaning you're predisposed to forgive, and you're going to stay with that person, you're going to continue on with them. And sacrifice, you will give up from yourself. You, it will cost you. You are willing to pay. Desire, commitment, and sacrifice. You see that all through Scripture. And so my kids are well-trained. I'm always talking with my girls especially, and I'm like, you know, someday there's going to be some chump, and he's going to come around, and he's going to say, I love you. <laughs> and this is your filter. Because this is what God's love is. This is what true love is, is desire, commitment, and sacrifice. And we live in a world where we think it's just desire. We watch movies, and it's all about desire. But in Hollywood, there's very little commitment and almost no sacrifice. If love doesn't have commitment and sacrifice, it's just desire. And there's marriages that I know of where there's commitment and sacrifice, but no desire. And that's equally false love. Desire, commitment, and sacrifice, it holds up. Look through Scripture and you'll see. In fact, we'll see that more and more today. But right now, we know in verse 16 what real love is because Jesus gave up. What's that? That's sacrifice. We know what love is because Jesus sacrificed for us. He sacrificed his life. He experienced the penalty for our sin because he loves us. That's what he did for us. So, in verse 17, it's right after 16. This is one of those verses that punches me right in the face. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? If you have enough money to live well, if you have enough money to where you eat every day, you can choose what you want to wear, where you want to eat. You have a roof over your head. You have clean water. You're living well compared to most of the world. Did you know that? You and I were in the top 1% of the world. And it says if you have enough money to live well, and you see somebody in need, 
especially a brother or sister, is he's talking to Christians here, and he's talking about us as believers. And if there's somebody in need in your midst, and you're doing fine, your bank account's in good shape, and you're okay, your bills are paid and things are okay, that's called living well. And you see somebody who's struggling and who needs help, and you do nothing, how can the love of God be in you? This is what John is saying. This is not what Ben is saying. This is what God is saying. And there's a lot of people sitting in pews all around churches in America that pass people by, pass needs by, that are not the good Samaritan, that are the Levite or the priest that just kind of avoid the mess, avoid the sacrifice. True love, sacrifice. And that includes the church. We should be able to sacrifice for one another. We should help each other out. That's what love looks like. And this doesn't just mean money. This also could mean time and effort and investing into somebody else. So here we are. He's saying all of these things, and and he says in verse 18, Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. I love that. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. The facts don't lie, is what he's saying. So we will be confident when we stand before God, and even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. Do you ever feel guilty? Maybe you're like sitting here right now and you feel guilty. (laughs) That's not my intent. And God uses guilt. Guilt is, for God, guilt is to the body to the to the soul what pain is to the body that's how god uses guilt he's trying to acknowledge he's trying to get you to acknowledge there's a problem and you got to do something that's what pain does right that's what god uses guilt for satan uses guilt to try to get you to quit god uses guilt to try to get you to wake up one of those leads you into further and deeper and better life one of those leads you into more destructive and depressed patterns. You can always identify where your guilt is coming from. But we all have feelings of guilt, don't we? We get feelings of guilt all the time. But he's saying God is bigger than our feelings of guilt, and he knows everything. Now listen, if you're truly serving God and trying to live your life for God and really doing these and practicing this, There might come feelings of guilt, but the facts don't lie. You can say, no, this is why I've served these people. This is why I've sacrificed and shown commitment. And this is why I've given. And look, this shows, my life shows, how I spent Saturday shows that I've passed from death into life. And so when those attacks come, when the doubts come, you have a solid ground to stand on. That's what John is writing to to give us. He's writing to believers of different age levels, different maturity levels, and he's saying, this is how you know. Some of them were experiencing doubt and guilt. And he was saying, you can actually know for sure. You have a weapon against guilt, and that is your transformed life. So he's saying all of these things. Verse 21, I love this. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence and we will receive from him him, whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. I love that. A lot of times we, we hear verses like, you know, John 15, where Jesus says, if you ask in my name, whatever you ask, the Lord will do for you. Have you read those verses before? 
Has it troubled you before? It's troubled me many times. When I ask for something and, and I think, Lord, I asked in Jesus' name and it hasn't happened yet. That's a key word. But it's also something to keep in mind that we need to keep this in context. It's when we're obeying God, when we're living for Jesus because we obey him and do what pleases him. When we're in that context where we're asking for things that please God and obeying God and our life shows that we love God and are serving him, that's the context in which he does whatever you want him to do. Because whatever you want him to do is whatever he wants to do. Psalm 37, 4, you remember that verse? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So there you go. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commands and remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. So there's a few things in here that we see that prove that you are a child of God. Let's go to the first slide here. The first slide here. How important is love to God? I want to ask you guys this. How important is love to God? We're in chapter 3, and we're also going to read chapter 4 in just a second. And guess what he's talking about? Over and over again, he's talking about love. Jesus, the night he was betrayed in the upper room discourse, he's talking with his disciples, and he's telling them important things that they're going to need to remember. Very important things. And he's talking about love. And he repeats himself several times. And here's John. He's talking about love, repeating himself several times. So I ask you again, how important is love to God? Extremely. He is love, right? We see that God is love. How important is love to God? Extremely important. It's at the highest priority level. Do you understand? I hope you're understanding that love is the highest priority for God and his people. He's saying this over and over again. Why? Because he wants you to really believe it. He wants you to know that love is so important. And we're going to see just why it's so important in just a minute. But love is one of the most important things in the world to God. He says it proves that you're regenerate. It, it proves that you've been given new life. It shows that you really actually believe. If you don't have love, then you don't believe. Simple as that. One of the things that's interesting to me is how Jesus made love popular. We live in a world now where everything's about love. In our Western world, love is so important, and people have messed up views of love, but honestly, if you look at history, and especially the history of Western culture, and you look at the world history, love was not a big deal until Jesus and his followers came along. In fact, that word agape, 
that, that word love that we see all through the New Testament, it was a word rarely ever used in the Greek language. Christians made that word a, a thing. And we have this, this culture that's been shaped by the ideas of love and forgiveness and redemption. And those are the values that for 2,000 years we've held dear. But 3,000 years ago, it just wasn't there. There was little, little exceptions here and there, but, but by and large, you just don't see that in history. And if you go to the Eastern cultures where the influence of Jesus and Christianity hasn't really been, guess what? There's really not much love. There's really not. In the family unit, you don't see love. You don't see forgiveness. You don't see this culture. This is what Jesus did. This is one of the most powerful contributions that Jesus made, and it's the signature of Jesus is love. So he, he refers to Cain and Abel. Can we turn to Genesis chapter 4 really quick? Genesis chapter 4. I love this passage. The second point on your outline is I problems keep us from giving and receiving love. I problems keep us from giving and receiving love. What do I mean by I problems? Not that you need glasses. It, I'm talking about the pronoun I. Okay? I problems keep us from giving and receiving love. Here we have the story of Cain and Abel. Read with me if you're, if you're there in Genesis 4. I love this story. Now the man, he's talking about Adam, had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Can you imagine that? Like, this is like the first birth ever. Can you imagine how weird and surprising that must have been? <laughs> what? This thing came out of me. And it's a, it's a man, but it's a child. And God gave me this. And any, is that weird to anyone else? That's just funny to me. So here he is. He, he's writing, and, and he says, Eve says this. I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. I'm in the NASB, FYI. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offerings. Another translation said, God accepted Abel's offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God rejected Cain's offering. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So here's Cain, and he offered a sacrifice to God, and God didn't like his sacrifice of fruits and vegetables. And what did Cain do? What was his attitude? Was he saying, okay, Lord, well, what do you want me to do? I'll do what you want. Or did he say, God, 
I'm angry because you need to bend your requirements around my desires. He wanted God to wrap around his own will. And honestly, brothers and sisters, a lot of us, we do this, don't we? In fact, most of the time, whenever I'm angry, it's usually because of something like this. Somehow, I have taken my will, and when it didn't go my way, I get upset. Really, you can reduce anger to, to usually this. And there's some righteous anger when you're angry at injustice and different things like that. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Cain's sin. You know, there's whole books written on the sin of Cain. What was Cain's problem? What did he do wrong? Does God really hate vegetables that much? And honestly, it's not about his sacrifice. It's about his heart. It's about this idea of, God, you should just be happy with what I give you. You know, that's, that's kind of a very popular attitude that we have still in our world today, isn't it? Why can't you just be happy with what I give you, God? I'll give you 10%. I'll give you, you know, just a, a few hours of my week. Why can't you be happy with that, God? And here's Abel, who it says he sacrificed the very best and, and the fat, which is weird, right? But back in that day, and even today, the fat is where the taste is, right? If you're really, like, splurging and you're going to eat a delicious meal, you know, if, if it's pie or something like that, it's the fat that tastes better. Eggnog at Christmas time, the non-fat, the fat version, the fat, it just tastes better. And there's other passages where God says the fat is mine. And so here's Abel giving the very best. And, and here's Cain saying, God, you should be happy with whatever I give you. But God is a powerful, mighty, holy God, and he deserves everything. He deserves our all. And he's not going to settle for less. You know, if you're trying to live this life for Jesus half-heartedly, or give God a percentage of your life, of your time, of your effort, of your desire, commitment, and sacrifice, if you want to give God 80%, it's not going to work out for you. It's really just not. If you're not going to worship God and live for God like this, it's just not going to work out. Because he's a holy God. And it's about us doing things his way. It's about us revolving around him, not him revolving around us. And so here's Cain. And one thing that's interesting, what do we see about God in this passage? Look at God's grace and love. God goes to Cain. And God says, Cain, hey, why are you so sad? Why are you dejected? Another translation says. And God warns him. God says, Cain, this is an opportunity for you. If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But if you do what's wrong, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door like a wild animal just waiting to pounce and take hold of you. And, and you need to master that. Don't let this be an opportunity for sin. Let this be an opportunity for repentance is literally what God was saying to him. But Cain was so blinded by his pride, his eye problem, that he refused God's love right here. This is God's love. 
God's love, his grace, was giving Cain a chance to repent. And so here's Cain, and he just has this anger, and this anger continues, and it lasts, and it keeps going. And you know what God, he goes out, you've heard the story, right? Kills his brother, which is like the first human death ever. Can you imagine that? That's insane. Like, I don't even know if he realized what was going to happen. Did they even know that death was possible? You know, Genesis 4 probably happened over hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Because you see that there's other populations, there's other cities and other places by the end of the, the chapter. And people lived hundreds of years back then. And the first death ever was Abel. And God says to Cain, hey, where's your brother? And Cain says those famous words, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And God said to Cain, your brother's blood is calling out to me from the ground. And from here on out, the ground is cursed because of you. This wasn't God just being a punk. God didn't curse the ground. Cain cursed the ground. The innocent blood of Abel cursed the ground. And God said, this is cursed for you. You're no longer able to be a farmer. You're going to wander. Everybody's going to know what you've done. And Cain said, this, this punishment is too big for me. I can't bear this. People will kill me. And God said, well, I'll put a mark on you. That's what I'll do. I'll put a mark on you. And what I'll do is when people see you, they'll know that if, if they hurt you, I'm going to pay them back sevenfold. I problems keep us from giving and receiving love. And the last thing I want to mention is in 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7. Start in verse 7 here. Beloved, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This verse is almost a mirror parallel of verse 16 in chapter 3. John is repeating himself because he wants you to get it. He wants you to understand that God personifies love and God shows what true love actually is through the person and work of Jesus. Dear friends, in verse 11, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. For no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Look at verse 12. Do you see this? The ultimate picture of God. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. What that means is his image is lived out in your love for one another, in our love for one another. Our love for one another, the love of the church, is a picture of God. It's who God is. 
It's the signature of God. That's how important love is to God. And so if you have a church where people don't love one another, where people don't desire one another, they, don't, they aren't committed to one another, and they don't sacrifice for one another, you have a false picture of God. But a real church has a, has a community where people desire one another, they're committed to one another, meaning, hey, I'm predisposed to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you no matter what. That's what commitment means. I'm going to stay with you. And I'm going to sacrifice for you. This is what a church is. And this is what John is writing. He's saying this is the ultimate picture of God. God is doing all of this so that your love, his, his image can be fully expressed in the way you love one another. In the way your family loves one another. People are going to see God. So what kind of God is your family, is our church family? What kind of God are we displaying? Is it an accurate picture of God? Or is it just some cheesy image with some white bearded guy? The church, through its love, is a picture of God. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us furthermore. We have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. This is important. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Are you afraid to see God someday? You don't need to be. Honestly, I've had people in speakers and, you know, growing up, I, I've had people just say all sorts of manipulative things, but the bottom line is today are you living for him today? Is your heart full of love for him today? The only thing God has ever required of you is today. Today, if you will hear his voice and not harden your hearts. Yesterday is gone. He can forgive yesterday. Tomorrow is not yet here. Today, you're responsible for today. So today, if you're following Jesus, if you're living for Jesus, if your heart is his, you have no fear. You don't have to fear future judgment, future punishment. And the next passage is, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his love. We love each other because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Verse 19. We love because he loved. Desire. He came after us. He took the first step. And it's our job as followers of God to personify desire, commitment, and sacrifice for each other 
and the world. You and I are supposed to be a picture of God. That's what church is supposed to be. People are supposed to experience God through you and me. Are they doing it? I want to ask just a simple question. What does God look like? Well, Jesus is a perfect picture of God. And we as his church are supposed to be the body of Christ, right? Jesus was incarnation number one. You and I are incarnation number two through the spirit of God. We together are the body of Christ. And we're supposed to be the presence of God here on this earth. We are supposed to be the ultimate picture of God. You and I. So, what's the signature of God? Love is the signature of God. What would those around you say is your signature? Maybe your wife sitting right next to you or a friend, somebody that you know, your mom, your dad. What would they say? This is the signature of Ben Sprague. This is the signature of Corey, of Lee, of Tim. This is the signature. What would it be? Is your life marked by love? Is that something people just can't deny? You know, this week, in closing, I'll just, I'll, I'll mention this. This is, I had an opportunity to meet a young man who wants to go into youth ministry. He's an awesome kid. His name is Xavier. Xavier, what a cool name, right? Xavier was born with a physical disability. And so, in his arm and his leg, his muscles just didn't develop. And so he was born with this, but he was also born without ever really knowing his dad. He was born into a home where his mom was a drug user and a drug dealer and spent a significant portion of her time in jail, in prison. So here's this kid, and he grows up, and he's broken. He hates his life. He hates himself. He has no picture of love anywhere around him. And then his mom, she, she gets out of prison, goes to rehab, finds Jesus, and starts taking him to church. But he's just going through the motions. His heart is so filled with hate because that's all he's really ever known. Never known desire, commitment, or sacrifice. And so Xavier, he's just going through the motions, going to church. But there was a youth pastor. This youth pastor saw him. This youth pastor cared for him. This youth pastor pursued him. That's desire. This youth pastor stayed with him through all of his rejections. All the times he said, no, I don't want to go. No, I don't want to do it. His youth pastor followed up and stayed with him. That's commitment. And finally, his youth pastor had been trying to get him to go to camp for all of these years. All of these years, he's saying, please come with us to camp. And, and we'll give you, we'll pay your way to camp. Just come. And that sacrifice, somebody paid for this kid, Xavier, to go to camp. And while he was at camp, the speaker gave an opportunity to come forward and give your life to Jesus. And, and so he, he just knew he had to do it. God had broken through the walls. So he got up, he went down, and he said, he turned around, and his youth pastor was running. I love that. That's a picture of God. That's what it looks like. 
desire, commitment, and sacrifice. The question is simple, is, is that you? What does God need to do in your life this morning to where you and I can look like that? Where you and I can have that love for our daughters, our sons, our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, husbands, wives. That's what it's supposed to be, you guys.